Welcome to episode 262 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. As I look ahead at 2022, I've been trying to think of a word for the year. My word for 2020 was revenue, which felt like a horrible joke in March, although it worked out quite well by the end of that very long year. My word for 2021 was profit. I realized that earning money is one thing, managing my business so I made a profit was something else entirely. Being able to buy a home this year is all the evidence I need to know I lived up to that word. For 2022, the word that keeps coming into my head is hobby. That's right, hobby. I've worked nonstop since March 2020 to reestablish and grow my business as the world shifted dramatically in unexpected ways. I'm a multi-passionate entrepreneur and I love my work, which is probably why I'm recording this at 11 o'clock at night instead of winding down for bed. I keep imagining there will be a lull in my calendar but I keep filling those lulls with new projects. It reminds me of the time when I was first hired as a special events manager during what I thought was their busy event season. A year later, I finally had to accept that it was always their busy event season. The difference now is that I'm the arbiter of my schedule, even though I don't always act like that's true. If I truly desire to work less in 2022, I know I need to replace those hours with something I'm equally passionate about. Thus, my word of the year is hobby. I'm looking for a mix of hobbies that I can do on my own, in a group virtually or possibly in person, and with my family, especially my four and six-year-olds. I've been asking people about their hobbies lately, and a few suggestions have caught my attention. Gardening. I'll definitely be setting up some raised beds for a vegetable garden this spring. Tai Chi sword form, mentioned by my friend Dorothy. Raising and releasing butterflies and creating a butterfly garden, which sounds like an awesome thing to do with my kids. And stand-up comedy, which Dory Clark swears is a great, great way to become a better speaker. Your challenge for this week. If you no longer have to commute to the office or to see clients in person, how are you using all that freed up time? Did you, like me, fill it with more Zoom meetings and projects? Are you aiming for a better work-life integration in 2022? What are you excited to fill your time with that isn't work-related? Hit reply to share your favorite hobbies. Before we dive into this week's interview, I've started hosting LinkedIn Lives, and my guests have been entrepreneurs who've left an Amazon review for my latest book, Small List, Big Results, Launch a Successful Offer No Matter the Size of Your Email List. Did you post a review? First, thank you so much. And do you want to chat about the book and your business? If so, you can fill out the form to let me know you are interested. Go to robbysamuels.com forward slash live. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest believes thoughtful planning could lead to great success in business. For the past two decades, he has helped individuals and organizations build and grow revenue streams through designing and growing their thought leadership platforms as well as acting as a guide and advisor for increasing business-to-business sales of thought leadership products. 
His clients come from a diverse set of backgrounds and specialties. They include New York Times bestselling business book authors, members of the Speaker's Hall of Fame, recipients of the Thinker's 50 Award, CEOs of public and privately held companies, and academics at prestigious institutions such as Yale, Wharton, Dartmouth, and London School of Business. He is the host of the Leveraging Through Leadership podcast, where he explores how independent thought leaders bring their ideas to scale within the business world. Please join me in welcoming Peter Winnick. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Robbie. Peter, thanks for joining us from your place in New York. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, those are two separate questions and I'm not sure if I hit the latter yet, but I'll, gi- I'll give you the first. So, I mean, my, you know, my definition of leadership is really the ability, the skill, the whatever it is that, that someone has, that someone develops, that gets others to voluntarily want to follow them, right? Because you can't lead your, I mean, you could theoretically lead yourself, but kind of a small operation, right? So <laughs> leading implies there's an other. And I think when that other side is voluntary versus, you know, you could lead by authority or you could persuade, influence, whatever. And I think it takes the right combination of intrinsic and extrinsic tools. And it's easy to go for extrinsic and say, oh, if I want Robbie to jump higher, give him more money. Maybe, right? Maybe he'll just do it because there's satisfaction or I acknowledge the hard work that he put into that or, you know, he's doing it for the team. So I think it's it's using both of those tools to, to get to a place where people are opting in. I love that I've been doing this show for so many years and I never get quite the same definition the second time. Um, The intrinsic and extrinsic uh, skills of of sort of how do you motivate people? I love this piece because we sometimes think, you know, dangle rewards, but not all people are motivated by the same external rewards. And a lot of us, almost all of us would benefit from being acknowledged. (laughs) Like that would be a big place to start. There's no downside to over-acknowledgement. Like, oh my God, Robbie's quitting because he got too many compliments and praises on the job. Like, I just can't take this anymore. Like, this doesn't work for me, so. Yeah, yeah, no, right. So like, we, we could all do more of that. <laughs> yeah, and then the second part of your question, you know, I, I, I don't know if I would be so bold as to say, oh, I've achieved it. But I will say that um, I have had many people in, in over my career of 30 some odd years in many different formats, opt in to follow me wherever I go. And, and that, that trust that, that knowing that not so much that someone's livelihood in your hand, although that's something you have to take with a lot of respect, but that they're doing it because they want to do it. And when you're, you know, when you only surround yourself or try to surround yourself by with, with smart, talented, incredible people, other people will want them as well. Right? So it is a competitive advantage as well to, to, to exercise good leadership skills. Yeah. I'm curious when those skill sets started to appear for you. Like, when do you first got to test, you know, having a, that kind of a, that kind of leadership role or that kind of sway or that, you know, when do people start to follow you? Well, I mean, I, w- I would say if you, if, you, if you went back to my report cards from the 70s, <laughs> um, yeah, they might there. not have used the word leadership skills. They might say disruption, disruptive questions, authority, um, uh, whatever the case may be, that, that one might argue uh, were, were, was the precursor to what evolved, you know, use the force for good towards leadership skills. So, uh, yeah, one might love say this. That. Or you so, can just say, you know, undiagnosed ADD. I mean, tomato, tomato. Yeah. Right? So, so you, were, you were a little bit of a troublemaker because you weren't like a rule follower. You weren't sitting still in the desk. Is that, so you were getting kind oh, of yeah, yeah, for yeah. that? 
Yeah. 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 yeah teachers didn't like, like when you would, you would constantly, well, what, you know, like I will listen, I, I, I said it to many, many teachers. I will never use geometry or trigonometry again. I have never used that again. Um, what's the point? You know? right, <laughs> so, right. I don't know if that's a leadership skill or, or, or pain in the butt skill, but whatever. Well, it's leadership. If you got the rest of the class to agree with you and follow along. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I'm always so curious, like what people were like on the, on the, on the, on the playground, you know, like back in the day, because um, sometimes it's very clear who they were. They've always been. And other times they weren't themselves. Like, like they, there's a, moment of transformation like the butterfly thing happens yeah maybe later in life did you somehow shift and channel this energy in some way that became seen as more productive and valued and appreciated as opposed to you know disruptive um or or like was that was yeah, there a moment so, around so I that i think that i think that coupled with my ambitions very 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 early on to be entrepreneurial at some level those two sort of need to go hand in hand Right. Uh, so I, I think the, the entrepreneurial driver was stronger than the leadership driver. But in order to achieve the objective of being an entrepreneur, you do have to learn to lead. Right. And then, you know, I started my first business. I was a kid. I was 22 years old, underfunded, like, you know, not enough money to run it, all this other stuff, no skills. No, I wouldn't say no skills, but no previous existing uh, skills, run, you know, leading and managing people. I didn't have the cash flow to afford to pay top dollars. I'm like, OK, there's got to be another way to win this game. Like then, then pay more, do more. I mean, I don't think we had two chairs in the office that matched, you know. <laughs> so it wasn't, you know, this this wasn't the foosball tables or any of those things. There had to be something about the energy that wanted people to opt in. Yeah, it's really great that you even stepped away, uh, like uh, Asar from a different vantage point, to even realized that that was another way. When you're in it, yeah. it's so hard to to have that perspective. So, so you started this at 22. Did you go to college? Was that part of the plan? Yeah. Yeah, well, so I didn't start this business at 22. Yeah, yeah. yeah but did yeah. you know yeah. going into college, like, what did you think you were going to be? Like, what was the goal? You know, I, um, I mean, the goal was to, to go to college, but I was, I was very much drawn to business at the same time. So my undergrad was economics. And one of the biggest arguments uh, that I had with my father, who didn't go to college and was only too proud to send me, you know, first generation, that whole story coming from blue collar, et cetera, was that unbeknownst to him, to him, uh, you know, he was proud, hey, I'm sending you to school, da, 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 da. And I reworked my entire schedule so that I can pretty much work full time without telling him. Um, and, and he was kind of pissed off, like, what well, you don't need to do that. I'll give you the money so you don't need it. I'm like, no, there's something about my money, like when I earn it, that feels better. And I think, you know, eventually he came to terms with that because it was it was kind of non-negotiable on my side. So I always liked having, I don't want to say one foot in the theoretical being in school, but the foot in the practical in real bit. So, you know, when you, when, when you, my father's an entrepreneur, so when you grow up with real business, you kind of have a different perspective than econ 101. And not that that's not a good thing, but the applied, like the stressors that I saw my father and others in the family have in business wasn't figuring out supply and demand right? like that they right. got or pricing or like, I mean, cash flow might've been a stretcher, but it was like, how do you get the people to do what you want them to do? Huh? That's interesting. Right. So yeah. and they don't teach that in econ. So I always knew that I wanted to do something, but I, I, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that answered your question. What was the entrepreneur? Like, what was the business that your, your father had? He was in a limousine business in New York. Yeah. So which meant that, you know, an uneducated, or, well, I wouldn't say on a street smart 
guy from Brooklyn starts off coming back uh, uh, from being in the service in the late 60s, not much of an education, blue collar, you know, recently married, blah, 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 you know, becomes a, a driver, chauffeur back in the day when that was a thing. But the cool thing was a lot of people started there and ended there, you know, and he had ambitions and, and was savvy enough to build up a nice, nice size uh, entity over a long period of time and blood, sweat and tears and working seven days a week and all that other sort of fun stuff. Interesting. I've talked to some people who have no entrepreneurial like businesses in their family yeah, and others who see it and then saw it almost as a warning sign <laughs> because they see all the downside. It's not glamorous. Um, but it sounds like even though you saw the non-glamorous side of, of your dad having this business, that you still had this entrepreneurial spirit. You just didn't want to follow in his footsteps, but you had your own sense yeah. of like where it was going to go. So what was your first business at 22? Well, I also knew that I did not want to, had no interest in getting into the family business, which was another, I mean, that's family business is just a polite way of saying, you know, uh, uh, you know, dysfunction for dollars. Like that's all. It is. So, um, you know, and some people do that well, but a, a lot of folks, there's, there's just a lot of baggage yeah. that comes with that. So what was the first business at 22 for you? Well, the business that I started at 22, one would now own, know as uh, basically similar to Grubhub. So in 1991, I think it was 1991, something like that. Was, maybe I was 23. Um, I was recently married and uh, I, I had been working full time for a couple of years. And I was lucky enough to get laid off. And I said, and you know, I was basically the, the, the organization that I was with pretty much full time undergrad hired me full time. I mean, I graduated Sunday, full time gave Monday and a year and a half later got laid off. It was the recession. I'm like, okay, that's great. Never working for anyone again. This is ridiculous. I don't like this. Um, what can I do? And was looking around and looking around and, and, and whatever. And there was this little entity uh, not far from where I was living that was delivering food from restaurants. But now you got to realize 1991, we did not have the internet. I think Al Gore didn't think of it yet or whatever. We did not have a fax machine, I don't think. Um, it was a mail order catalog. So they basically put together a catalog of a handful of restaurants in a local geography, sent it out to residents. And said, hey, instead of ordering, you know, whatever, pizza or Chinese, you can do this. So I convinced a friend who's now no longer a friend, maybe because I convinced him, like, this would be great. We could do this, you know. And I got my hands on, uh, I had owned um, the apartment that we lived in, mortgaged it for 20 grand, which was like a million bucks, was more than my life savings, and threw it in and was able to build that up to a, a really nice size business in the New York metro area that I sold in 1999. And we did a roll up and then you might've read about this thing called the dot bomb, but you know, if, you know, we could do another show on what it's like to think that you're worth millions and millions of dollars and you're early 30 on paper to watch that roll away. But it was basically uh, many folks that did stay in that business eventually sold out to Grubhub 25 years later. Um, Got it. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, it was the precursor to all the conveniences we have today that we don't really think about. Like where did this all start? Someone had to have the vision and someone had to keep making it better you know, make it a better, a better format, a better flow, a better, you know, customer experience. It sounds well, like, then the internet happened, yeah. you know, I remember 1996 or 1997 being at a conference and like this company came out of nowhere. I think they were called cyber slice and they'd raised $50 million, like $50 million. And they were going to deliver pizza online. I was like, what's online? Like, I bet, you know, I've got an AOL account, but like that thing squeaks a lot. And I don't understand the commercial application. It was really, really cool watching all those things happen and, you know, the days of pets.com and webvan and things flaming out and all that sort of stuff. But then, you know, what 
stayed or what was rebirthed now once the technology caught up yeah. with the ideas. When did you conceive of the business that you currently have? Yeah, so Thought Leadership Leverage, I started in its current iteration in, in or about 2008. And where that came from is in 2000, well, I'll go back, 2005 through 2008, I worked exclusively uh, with and for Keith Ferrazzi, actually launched Never Read Alone, which is, given your domain, is, is, is probably one of the granddaddies of the, of, of the books. And to put it in context, that book has sold over a half a million copies the average business book is you probably know sells like 1200. So that's sort of like the star Wars of business books as opposed to an independent film that most books are. And um, so, th so that, that gave me, I mean, many of the things that I was lucky enough to work on with Keith and for Keith uh, you know, I learned a lot and I realized like, wow, this is really, really cool. And the world is changing. The internet's changing and the speaker's business is changing. Like, you know what? I don't want to be monogamous. <laughs> so I was working, um, running, building and running, a speaker's business for Keith, as well as a training and development business that focused on the B2B side. So then I was like, okay, let me just go back to just doing it on my own and opening up the doors. And that's where, you know, uh, that's where we are 13 and a half years later. So I'm curious, did you know Keith Frazzi then before the world knew Keith Frazzi? Is that, was there a prior? Very brief, you know, it's, it's, you know, this is how things are weird. I was doing a turnaround right before I met Keith through a friend that was a turnaround guy. I'd never done turnaround work. So I was uh, running a boutique consultancy for startups and small businesses that was focused on growth. Uh, downtown New York, Chamber Street, opened a couple of years after 9-11, you, you know, literally a couple blocks uh, away from the World Trade Center, if you know the area. And um, there were these turnaround guys that we partnered with because occasionally we'd come across an organization that was broken. So we'd say, oh, let's go refer the business there. And those guys called me and said, oh, we, we have this client and they bought us and they're in the training and development space and, and you should come have drinks with us because uh, we think you, you, know, you, sh you should come on and partner with us on this thing. I'm like, training and development, that is the lamest, stupidest business. We have no interest. So after like my buddy Mike reaching out three or four times and, and eventually it was the bourbon that I said, okay, well, I'll meet you for a drink, but we're not going to do this deal together. And then I, I learned a little bit about it. And ultimately what it was is this is where two sides of my world came in. So I was always entrepreneurial and I was always, we didn't call it thought leadership then. We called it being a nerd, right? <laughs> always the guy that was underfunded reading a lot books, magazines, whatever I can get my hands on. I'm like, but I never thought about the business models of each of those authors and thought leaders. Why would I? You buy your book for 25 bucks and you read an article and go, oh, that's interesting. Let me do something with it. That company was 45 years old at the time. It was based on a book that somebody wrote in the 60s. I'm like, that's interesting. So anyway, that's going on in the background. And I saw this little tiny blurb in, I don't know if it was Forbes or Fortune. There's a book coming out soon called Never Read Alone by the World's Greatest Networker, da 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 so I look them up and just reached out and it just wound up, I just reached out and said, Hey, I'm doing this turnaround at this company, been around for 45 years. Here's the success we've had, whatever, whatever, based on your book. I think there's probably opportunity to turn that into professional development and other things. Maybe we grab a cup of coffee and it just so had the timing was right on his side, which I had no way of knowing. So, um, he actually had the book it. planned, but didn't have a business strategy to like build an empire around it. Cause when you're writing a book, you don't always know where it's going to go. I would say that the book was not done strategically. So Keith had a business at that time. He was a marketing consultant. So don't forget, right. Keith was the CMO at Deloitte, CMO at Starwood, whatever. So he's out on his own being a, a, a boutique um, marketing agency that was doing phenomenal. The book really came out as this side thing. There was an article in Inc. Magazine. Tal Raz wrote it. Tal became the, co you know, the, the ghostwriter co-author for Never Alone. So this was just sort of a thing. Hey, I'll write a book. They'll pay me to write a book. And, and Keith being the hyper 
competitive type A win, you know, win-win kind of guy. Well, if I'm going to do it, you know, of course it's going to be a New York Times bestseller. If I'm going to do it, of course it's going to be one of the best books that are ever written. So, right. but I, I would say at the time there wasn't really a big or a real a particularly thoughtful business plan underneath it relative to well, what do we, what is it that we can take out of that book, turn into capabilities to um, teach others, so that not that they can be you know a million little Keiths in the world. I don't know that anybody would advocate for that, but that they can develop the capabilities in their own business and their own practice and their own lives. It's just so interesting to to learn about sort of some of the behind the scenes and realize that, you know, what we see um, in in retrospect, it's not as thought out. You know, like yeah, I think when we're entrepreneurs and we're trying to figure out how to how to make our way in the world, we look up to people and we say, oh wow, like they did this thing and like, but it's almost like we imagine they were born an adult. <laughs> you know, yeah, right, like, right, right, like, right. What right. that doesn't make right. sense, but we can't imagine. The, 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 the before time. So it sounds like your timing and your, your willingness to reach out. I mean, I think a lot of people would have seen that little article note about, you know, Keith's book coming out and not reached out. So there's something else about, you know, your willingness to kind of put yourself out there. Um, I'm sure you've done that and not gotten a response. Well, one is, I mean, and it was literally, I, I have to grab that article at some point. I mean, it was literally like maybe a paragraph. And there was something about it that was interesting because I was always a big believer in developing relationships. So the first business that I had that we talked about that I sold, part of the reason I was able to be part of the team or, or the first group that sold and be senior leadership there is we had a trade association, which was, you know, that, that I was the president of and a co-founder of. So the relationships throughout the country were critical. And I always did that, not self-serving, but like, hey, you've got a business in Chicago. I'm in New York. We should be buddies because we could share you know, we could share ideas and thoughts and we're not competitors, right? So I had, a, I had a really solid network of people in the same industry in, I don't know, 60, 70 different markets around the US, which was, unbeknownst to me, was incredibly valuable when the investors came around. I just did it because it's fun to talk to people that do what you do. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how um, your instincts were spot on for what was needed later in life. And a lot of people scramble to like pull together, you know, that kind of network in the moment of need. Um, it's hard to do it when you need it, but if you yeah. kind of build it along the way, it's there for you. That's the key thing. I mean, and, and you know this better than anybody, Robbie, like, you know, there's two types of people that develop relationships, right? One that's a, you know, here's some dude that you went to undergrad with, you haven't talked to in a zillion years. He's unemployed, reaches out. Hey, Robbie, can you introduce me to so-and-so? I'm like, oh, I, I guess he's still alive. Like, right. Versus someone that you're always connected with. And it doesn't mean you're having coffee with them weekly. And, you know, has always been there for you, even, even when there's no need, you know, um, because people can smell that. And it, there's a far too many people are far too awful at developing relationships. And I think the networking word is, is a word that needs to be eliminated from the vocabulary because anybody that claims that they like it is either selling insurance or psychotic or both. But I do like relationships. That's the part that I like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, networking that was the big thing. Means. Yeah. I would think one, one of the things I was, happiest with the most proud with with my time with Keith is it was positioned as the networking guy. And I'm like, we will never use the N word again. It's all about relationships that power growth. Because then you can go, what does growth mean? Is it personal? Is it professional? The answer is yes. But networking is so one-sided. I mean, we've all been to that event where somebody's shoving a business card, remember well, when we were going to events, down your throat, you know, why they're looking with one eye across the room at the other guy or the other like Oh, who enjoys that? That's just gross. So. Yeah, I don't think even the people doing could say they actually enjoy it. 
um, at the end of the day. Like, it's a hard, yeah, it's a hard way to sell. True. It's, it's a hard way true. to sell. Like, yeah, no, I've, I've been the recipient of, of a lot of those conversations. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like, really? This is the way we're going to do The only thing worse was cold calling, which at least that's been made illegal, right? So we're not getting, you know, new, new friends from Merrill Lynch calling us seven times a day. So Inundated. So um, when, when you got this, it's, I find it fascinating that in some ways you, you almost missed the opportunity to think about thought leadership as a business. Um, because you had not clicked these two ideas together and you were like training development, like what, you know, what is that? You know, but like you had to sort of, you had to sort of be walked into the idea. Oh, wait. And then then immediately you saw the application. You're like, oh, right. All the people creating content in the world need a business plan (laughs) for how to do that better. Um, Now that's a long, that's funny in a way, like 2008 is also the reception recession, a lot of new businesses, a huge entrepreneurial boom, happened right then. You, of course, had the benefit of already having been the entrepreneur. You had, you had a lot of Yeah, but, you know, 2008, people said to me, oh, you know, there's a recession. You're, you're, you're going to you know, open up your door. I'm like, you know, I'm just choosing not to participate and not to sound glib. But, you know, I get, you know, certain things you don't want to be in. Like it, it, anybody that was in travel, hospitality, tra- you know, whatever, the first six months of the pandemic, I feel for them. There's not, you know, there's no travel and you sell travel, you're in deep doo-doo. But, you know, People also use those things, quite frankly, as, oh, there's a recession, things are horrible. Like, no, but there's also opportunity, you know? So I happen to be, and this wasn't timing. So part of one of the outcomes of the recession, not to the extent that it was during COVID, was a lot of speakers got their heads handed to them, right? So they're out there, they're speaking, they're getting their 20, 30 gig grand a, a year, you know, a, a, a speech, more than they can handle, five, six, eight a month, making a million bucks a year, not handling it. And when the proverbial, you know, uh, crap hits the fan and that stops, and they were like a store that had one product in inventory. And that wound up being uh, to, played to our advantage. I didn't, guess what? I didn't design the fall of Lehman Brothers. You know? <laughs> but part of, part of anybody's success, and I think most people aren't honest enough to say it, is right place, right time. Yeah, right idea. But right place, right time is a big deal. Definitely about seeing an opportunity. And I do think about this in, the, in relation to what happened in you know, March 2020 a lot of people hit the gas and a mm-hmm. lot more people hit the brake. Like, you know, it's sort of interesting to see how the, how the chips fell afterwards. So six yeah. months later, I would meet people and they'd say, oh yeah, well, you know, when it gets back to normal. And I'm like, what, you know, what are you even talking about? Like I've, I've built a whole empire in six months and you're still waiting to get back to speaking in person. Like, <laughs> like, no, and it's interesting. And, you know, I, I, I hear that because I think, listen, we were all entitled to a week or two or a month or whatever to go, this is wow. Like usually when something happened, you'd say, well, when 08 happened, it was different than 01, but not entirely, which was different than the early night. Like you at least had a point of reference. None of us have been around since 1918, right? So this is like, uh uh-oh, this is a whole new game. Um, And I think a lot of people's natural response was, well, it's kind of like a snow day. It's just a lot of snow days. And then we just go back to normal. It's reinvent. It's not resume. And anybody that was in a resume mindset lost. Yeah, no, totally reinvention. I'm so glad you used that word instead of the P word. I'm kind of, kind of over Ugh. the pivot. <laughs> yeah. I think I was over the word pivot by May of 2020. I was like, it's not a pivot. It's a reinvention. Let's get, let's get all with it. Right. I, I dislocated something with all the pivots. I mean, that was, you know, <laughs> it, was, it hurt. So tell me how was your business positively or negatively impacted by the pandemic did suddenly all these people say 
my gosh, I have to create multiple ways of telling people what I do. I have to have new ways of being out in the world. Or did a lot of people bury their head in the sand and you had to coax them back out into the sunlight? Like, you know, well, all the above. So yeah, to put, to put it in context at the very end of 2019, Q4 of 2019, probably around this time of the year, back when humans roamed the earth, like free range chickens, remember those days we would like be out and about and hug and shake hands and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, whatever, <clears throat> we launched a new practice area called the organizational thought, which is where we take what we've done over the years with authors, speakers, thought leaders, et cetera, and apply it at much larger scale to big organizations. So we launched that, which totally different group. Our core business literally, you know, just went to hell in a handbasket, like went from, we were killing it in 19, 20 was looking phenomenal. And then it wasn't even the brakes. It was like two feet on the brakes, the emergency brakes and the ripcord on the trolley, you know, and it was like, okay, here we go. Now what? So, you know, we had to figure out what, what do we do? And much of what we do is more of what we've always done, but we had to wait for things to catch up and be of service to the marketplace in the interim. Much of it was what needs to be done differently. Um, net, net, you know, right now, business is phenomenal, you know, um, because, and I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. It happened in a way and happened other times. The speaking side of the business, which is not our core focus, there's a lot of fat and ways and there's a lot of former speakers that will now be, you know, mortgage brokers or whatever, you know, um, and that's fine. The ones that win were the smart ones in advance that knew it's not a one trick pony where it's, it's not, you know, if all you thought of as a speaker is I get in front of stage, I get a fee, I go home and then I go to another place next year. You totally missed the point. It was paid business development. And my model has always been, how do you design and develop a strategy that enables a thought leader to generate five to 10 X the revenue that they do in direct billing services, speaking, advising, consulting directly in non that digitizing that and licensing and all that. So net net it's, it's been good. It's not the way we wanted to get here, but uh, yeah. And we've seen a lot of fallout and a lot of shakeout. And I think it's an awful, awful time to be someone first coming into the speaking world. I don't know that we will ever see another 2019 or 18 in terms of number of events, frequency of events, live in-person events. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if that doesn't happen because the bar has been raised and companies have done their budget and say, we've basically gone two years without doing the events. All right. When things get back to normal, Robbie, you're not going to do eight events a year. If you were an employee, you can do two, you know, in person, go to Scottsdale, go to Phoenix, go to wherever you want and do unlimited digitally. They're not an even exchange, but you know, yeah. And even that is a difference of how people value and, and um, can engage online. Um, I think we've, we've all had a learning curve around both how to produce those events and as participants, how to, how to really show up. Well, um, and you know this. I mean, the yeah. content digital is good for content delivery. Hello, Netflix, right? It's not good for human connection or community. It can be made better, but it's not inherently the medium that says, this is the, the way I'm going to develop a real connection right? Uh, with, with Robbie or communication or community with Robbie. It can be, and we're learning how to do that, but it's, it's, I don't think there's a one, uh, you know, I don't think that code has been cracked yet. Yeah. I was just thinking about how prior to the pandemic, watching a virtual program with your screen off uh, while washing the dishes, you know, like, yeah, exactly. like that was a way exactly. you consume content, but you can't do that now and expect to get real value out of not just the content, but also the community that was being brought together. And so there's like, the onus is a little bit on the participants, which was always true to like have intention and follow through on their intentions. But a lot of it's on, you know, how do, how do we organize these things? 
I, I actually was just thinking about this in the context that um, I started hosting a weekly event soon after. Um, yep, I know you did we. similarly. Yep. So um, you were saying earlier that you were trying to be of service to this community while you were waiting for them to sort of like write the ship a little bit so you could, you know, actually be able to offer them services. Totally. Yep. Um, so you, how did you start thinking about hosting? Something? So, yeah. So for me personally, it was an odd, pl- forget the business because I knew we would survive and we'd get through and we'd figure it out. Right. But um, it's really not my comfort zone to be a somewhat smart, fairly well-paid consultant that's telling all his friends and colleagues and clients, I don't know, because that never happened to me before. Right. Like at least not that I always knew every answer to everything, but they, you know, I, they were bringing us in to solve the problems that we knew how to solve. Right. So if I bring in an electrician to do electrical work, I'm going to assume he knows what to do. But, but so I felt this, like, I don't have it. I don't know. Normally at least I have a couple ideas, whatever. So I, I was really frustrated. It's like the second, third week in March. So this is like maybe 10 days after the world shut down. I'm like, okay, I'm not the type to sit idle as are either are you. So I'm like, what do I got here? I'm like, number one, I have a great network, right? I have, I have amazing relationships and I've invested in those and continue to invest in those every day. And I've got the Zoom account that I pay an extra 20 bucks a month for. So I'm like, okay, there's my Reese's Pieces. So I threw it out there and, and I talked to my CEO. And I said, Let, let's just do this. Let's just put out every Tuesday at one o'clock for the next three weeks, let's see who shows up. And we were really prepared to be the losers that threw a party that nobody came to, right? Like it, that's fine. And it was really amazing. I mean, we had up to, I don't know, well over a hundred people, I mean, world around speakers, thought leaders, consult, and everybody basically standing up there naked going, geez, I don't know. And here we are a year and three quarters later, and we just moved it back in Labor Day to every other week. We went Every Tuesday at one o'clock, come hell or high waters, we never missed one for a solid 18 plus months. Now it's every other week. We don't benefit directly from that at all. It's just being the, the, the place that people come to, gra- to, to gravitate, relationships that have been built, some really amazing stuff that has happened yeah. from that. I mean, this is where, you know, conveners like ourselves, like people who know how to gather people, create a container, um, the, 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 the connections that happen will happen if you give people the right environment for it. And then all these cool things kind of arise. I, one thing I found different from um, virtual versus in-person is that often I didn't know the results in person. Like I hosted multiple uh, like, regular right. events in person. And then like, I'd find it like, you know, five years later that, you know, people had met at my event and then and something off. happened. Right, right. right, right. Whereas there's some feedback loop that I find is a little more um, consistent with the, with the virtual. Um, and it might be because it's either used to communicating with me virtually. So it's a little easier for them to like send me that note or it just maybe more frequency. I feel like people are showing well, up. There's more visibility, right? Yeah. So if I was at your event three years ago, I didn't feel a need to put on LinkedIn. Hey, thanks Robbie. Cause I met Sally at your event and we're now collaborating. Like I may do that, but it wasn't really the norm to do so. Right. Yeah. So it's really nice as connectors to re- to now see the, the fruits, the fruits of our effort, right? Like it's like, Oh wow. Like it's really cool. And it makes you motivate to keep doing it. Um, I just, um, this is a, we're now recording in, in late October and, um, where I'm like, when, where are we? It is late October. Um, and I right. just had other people host and produce my event for the first time. I was going to New York for a Dora Clark event and I mm-hmm. could have maybe pulled it off, but you know, didn't want to stress myself out. 
And so I had people in my community that are trained to do this. So I've trained them to do it. So they took it on. It was like 19, 20 months in, you know, to a weekly event that I stepped aside. And it's nice to know that it can continue, right? Like, like it doesn't, ha- I'm figuring out now, how do I grow beyond me? You went down to every other week. We might do that one day. Um, but I think there's such value in being a space where people can really engage and connect. Um, all right. Here's my, my sort of wrap up question. This is one of the things. Well, actually, before Uh-oh. I do a wrap up question, Uh-oh. I'm realizing yeah. I want to ask you more specifically about networking because we've been talking about it the entire time. But um, are there any habits or philosophies or practices you have to stay in touch with not just the like innermost circle, but like your second and third layers out the people you see annually at events or you work with five? Oh, years yeah. Ago? I mean, so. I mean, I've actually evolved it into an offering from a business perspective. We call it strategic account planning, which is not a unique term. But ultimately, literally, we have worked with dozens, maybe hundreds of clients and applied this methodology, and it has yielded millions, if not tens of millions of dollars, literally going through your network, right? So the first step is, well, geez, back in the old days of, of if I moved into the apartment you lived in, L.L. Bean would continue to send me the catalog, remember, or current resident, that doesn't exist anymore. So First, you got to organize your data. Your, you know, where does it live? You have LinkedIn, you have your your Outlook, all those things. Get it organized. Get it in one document. You know, typically an Excel sheet, CSV, whatever. And literally, and is it is a tedious, somewhat thankless, painless process. Go through it. You will be surprised. Um, Ninety nine times out of hundred, it's where the next million dollars worth of your business is going to come from. And and you then have to add, and I don't have the time to get into the details systems and processes around it to figure out the outreach to put weight, you know, not all people are created equal. Sorry, Thomas Jefferson or whoever wrote that. Right. You know, like, like there are people that are worth war to you right now, based on your goals, objectives, desired outcomes. And it doesn't mean it has anything to do with their personality. It doesn't mean they're the best people or the smartest people, but who is of most value to you. And I think a limitation to human beings, one of the many is that we tend to be sort of present and a little bit future focused, right? So, you know, I can list all the names of all my current clients and the ones that we're working with or whatever, but ask me to go back five years. I need, I need some help with that. And there's equity there. There's value there. And going back to whether it's someone that you worked with 20 years ago or a client that you worked with 10 years ago and all those sort of things, but the onus is on you to have the systems and processes and methodologies. I, I reach out. I literally, my, my LinkedIn network, I think was 28,000 people. Um, I started it in January. I thought I'd be finished in May. Here we are in October, literally going through to do outreach, recategorize them, see what they're up to, do the research. And I spend half an hour, an hour every single day, not on the weekends, doing this. And it yields results every single week. That's amazing. And um, it's so timely for us to be talking about this. My new book, Small List, Big Results, Launch a Successful Offer, no matter the size of your email list, is really a step-by-step on how to do what you were just describing for people who think that the reason they're not able to launch their offer or their course or their solution or whatever it is, is because they didn't have a big enough email list. But I'm like, you have a huge network. Um, and I love that you're, you're, you're illustrating that it's possible even, I mean, most of us do not have 28,000, but if with some discipline uh, and consistency, you can continue to sort of go through and discover really stumble upon. Well, but, but, but even the 28,000, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, like I'm a rocker at this, but, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was probably half that. And I knew that, okay, I've got more time on my hands. What am I going to do with it? I'm going to, I'm going to build my network in a meaningful and thoughtful way, reaching out to people and not selling, reaching out and connecting and say, Hey, Rob, I know you do this. You and I met through a bunch of mutual friends. Yes. Right. And I'm sure we've got friends that have met through 
connections that we've made. And that's, that's, there's a compounding or flywheel, whatever effect of your network. And most people quit before they get a dividend. And I think that's a mistake. Yeah. So there's a stick to it. Like you, you, results yeah. are around the corner kind of thing. And a lot of people don't have the discipline follow through with that plan. Um, but you're hearing from Peter that it's a worthwhile investment of your time. Um, Cause I'm like, you know, Peter's a busy guy. He's telling you he sends half an hour a day. That's, you know, 10 hours a month uh, geared towards this sort of, you know, and it's not networking with a specific goal. You're like, I'm curious to know who it is in my network and things will come from this. Like, new opportunities, right? You, you don't even know until you see the name, like what that outreach is going to look like. And where they are today. I mean, that's the beautiful, you know, people move around and people do different things, change careers or, you know, w- you know, one of the benefits of being around for a while is, is your peers now have budget. Right? <laughs> now our decision makers now are, you know, it's, uh, it's a good thing. It's funny. It's funny you're saying this because uh, a lot of my clients are entrepreneurial folks in their fifties who are sort of feeling like they're starting from scratch. And I'm like, you have 20 or 30 years of, of right. professional network and the people you met in your twenties now ha- have director titles. <laughs> like, no, that's exactly right. No C-suite people like you have access <laughs> that you maybe didn't realize you had. So everything you're saying really rings true. All right, here we are wrapping up. Uh, my favorite question is if we were, recon- we're going to not lose touch, Peter, I know this, but if we're reconnecting on purpose a year from now. And you were telling about all the amazing things that have happened in the last year. What are we going to be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the next 12 months? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll, I'll chunk it. So from the business side, this organizational thought leadership practice that we started in 19 um, is growing really rapidly. I think it might or probably will within a year from now take over in terms of revenue and, and all that, the core business, which I'm really excited about starting to do things at a global level with some world-renowned companies. We're working with ARP, we're working with the door. I mean, it's really, really cool that all this stuff we've done for almost 20 years for individual thought leaders actually works at a much larger scale and magnitude, which is Latin for much bigger budget you know, over there. So I think that from the business side, I think um, from the world side, it'll be nice to be saying like, oh, it was so great to meet, meet with you at that event in person. That was a mind-blowing event where we actually got to meet, right? Like, like, I think there's so many new relationships and friends or colleagues or whatever, you know, however you want to categorize people that have been formed during this piece that will be sort of tapped off in person versus that used to be the starting point. You're going to meet someone now and they're going to really feel because they are an old friend, even though you might never have shake, shook their hand or had a meal with them. Can't wait to celebrate all of that um, with you. And it reminds me a lot of the early days of Twitter. Um, I met a lot of people through Twitter back yeah. when we all talked about what we had for breakfast. I'm glad those days oh. were over, but it was really fun to get to know people. And then you'd hug them when you met them in person for the right. first time. Cause right, like, right, right. Cause you knew connection. them, you knew their yeah, voice. You knew you knew their, yeah. 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 And even like now that. I think it's even, it's even more so with zoom and the visual and, you know, feeling a sense of people's space and all that is much different than tweeting, you know, avocado toast, like, okay. 140 characters. <laughs> right. Right. At right, the time, right. right? Limitations all. Um, this sounds amazing. How can people find you and follow your work, Peter? Yeah. So we've got the website, thoughtleadershipleverage.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can email me directly, Peter at thoughtleadershipleverage.com. And then, you know, all YouTube, whatever, all the usual, all the usual places, including Twitter, where I never talk about what I had for breakfast. 
I will put all the links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Peter, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Peter. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 262. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.